Welcome to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Survive and Thrive, a podcast co-hosted by Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and Courtney Nordrum, Regulatory Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer at Deluxe. This season on Survive and Thrive, we're talking about compliance disasters, which befell companies because they weren't looking at the right clues, had their collective heads in the sand, or did not expect the unexpected. If you want to know how to prepare for and avoid disasters from the compliance perspective, this podcast series is the podcast series for you. Survive and Thrive. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. And I'm Courtney Nordrum. I am Regulatory Counsel and the Chief Compliance Officer at Deluxe Corporation in Minnesota. Today's episode is all about surviving a code of conduct investigation. Courtney, it's 4 p.m. on Friday. You have reviewed your cybersecurity policy on email spam, particularly a timing issue, as we learned in our last episode. And you get an email from the Securities and Exchange Commission. So you immediately, red flags pop in front of your eyes. But then you read it, and it's actually got the phone number of the local SEC office. And you look a little bit further, and it's got the email of the head of the SEC local office because you've Googled SEC (laughs) Minneapolis, and you've seen it's the same person. So you begin to worry, perhaps this is not spam. And uh, then you focus on the text of the email, which says, hey, Courtney, We'd love to come by and have a little chat with you uh, Monday morning about uh, your code of conduct. Um, We'd like to review your code of conduct. Um, And you're mulling this over, and they invite you to give them a call. Okay. And it's Friday at 4, and they're the government, so at least you could say you tried. So you do, and they say, well... We'd like uh, we'd like to review your code, but we really we we know that the code is a foundational document of every compliance program, and we'd like to dig a little bit deeper into your code uh, because we see a code of conduct is actually an internal control. And you know, Courtney, we actually uh, <clears throat> administer and regulate internal controls, and uh, even around things uh, like the FCPA. But we might look at it for other reasons. We'd like to look at your code design, your implementation, training, and your rollout. And so you hang up the phone and you think, well, this is very interesting. Um, I wonder how many people in the company actually know about our code. And I wonder how many people could know where it is um, if I ask them about it. So you begin to dig around and think about what is uh, really not in your code, but because that's going to be important, but how was your code created? How was it rolled out? Is there accessibility within your organization? Now, of course, Courtney, you're chief compliance officer of a multinational organization, so you recognize that it has to be in local language when appropriate. Um, but then you begin to wonder, um, I wonder how our training has been on our code. Has everyone taken the training? Um, How am I going to show that? Uh, And then you begin to consider 
Well, you know, the code really mean it needs to mean something. And I remember when we rolled out our code about eight years ago, I wonder when, 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 when we updated it, we did, <laughs> didn't we? Um, so, uh, and I wonder how we designed it back then and how did we design the update and have we taken information that's come to us, uh, over the past eight years and, and incorporated into any update to the code. And then you really, um, Actually, you're kind of getting into this because you realize this could be a, a big opportunity, providing, of course, you pass the inspection, um, to maybe uh, see, has your code been operationalized? And what I mean by that is, are people out in the field not simply looking to the code for guidance? That's one thing. But are they putting the code into practice? Are there even any anecdotal stories you've heard through the grapevine where a BD guy said, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, we can't do that. It violates our code of conduct. We, uh, we have to wire transfer the money to your uh, company bank account. So are there any kind of wins that you can talk about? Is there any way for you to show that the employees are really putting the code of conduct into practice? So, you know, you've got uh, 48 hours to get ready for this and you're a lawyer. So, Friday to you means two more working days until Monday. So <laughs> what do you do over those two working days? Um, first, I find the nearest pillow and scream into it. And then I collect myself. And uh, quite honestly, if the SEC calls, I'm going to call my boss and tell him that the SEC calls. Uh, he's general counsel. Um, but I, I think he should know. And uh, this, I'll call the CEO and let him know as well. But what I will also tell them is we got this. Uh, because the, the building of a code is difficult but not hard. So it is something that you need to do right. But there are so many ways to do it right that you can kind of there's a concept called the pit of success. So you basically do something or, or build something so that the default is success. And that is kind of how I think of the code and training and, and teaching people what to do in, in compliance generally is we train you so that your default is success, is you making the right choice. But when you're talking about the code, the first thing I'm going to look for is I'm going to search in all of our documentations, all of our documentation online in my paper files for evidence of the last time we updated the code and what we changed and why we changed it. Those things are going to be really, really important because not only are they going to be things that the SEC is going to look for and ask for, they're going to tell me what triggered the change last time. This is all a hypothetical situation. Let me just put that out there because I did a brand new code rollout in 2020. And I trust that every single person in my organization knows the code by heart and can speak to it and quote it like their favorite movie. Um, but from a hypothetical situation, I'm going to look back to see what triggered the last revised copy, what, what the revisions were for. And then 
assuming that it's up to date enough to cover current law, which I'm hoping it is, and that the SEC doesn't completely just shut us down, um, I'm going to use this as an opportunity going forward to rebuild a more robust and operationalized code. So in doing that, we go, boom, how do we design and create a code? Well, first Google it. And then you're going to see articles from Tom Fox on, on code, codes of conduct, codes of ethics. You're going to see all of the major players in the compliance space telling you what to do with your code. And for the most part, they're saying a lot of the same things. Here's how to do it. Here's what it should look like. Here's how you train on it. Here's how you measure whether or not it works. But when you get into the nitty and gritty, I think it's really important to look externally, but also look internally. What does your code look like for your organization? So I can speak to my last code rollout where we built a focus group and we pulled in people from my team, audit, finance, IT, some business folks, procurement. We brought everyone together in a focus group and we gave them the current code and we said, redline this. Mark it up. Tell us what you hate. Tell us what you love. Tell us what you think works and what doesn't and what's missing and what we can get rid of. And we basically came back from that code focus group with, well, everybody hates something <laughs> and everybody marked at least one part of it to, to get rid of. And so we, we rewrote the code from scratch. But the important thing was that we were looking internally. What's going to work for our organization and what's going to work for the people who work for our organization? That is really key because one of the things that the DOJ, SEC, anyone who cares about your code in a regulatory way is going to care about is that you've actually tailored your code to your organization. I have a code that speaks to office-based and manufacturing-based workers because we have both. If you have one or the other or neither, your code needs to speak to your population. You need the language you use to be familiar and comfortable to everyone. Do not use legalese. Nobody likes lawyers. Sorry, Tom. And <laughs> legalese is really off-putting. Use language that you use internally at your organization. You have acronyms, you have turns of phrase that are very common in your organization. Make sure to carry those through in your code so it feels like part of your organization. If you have a highly educated organization or an organization that has many uh, second language, English as a second language or third or fourth language speakers, or folks who are perhaps less likely to have gone to college, then make sure that your code is accessible. The last thing you want people to do is think that the code wasn't written for them. Because if they can't connect with the language, they're not going to connect with the lessons. Can, can I stop you there? Does that yeah. even apply to the residents of Lake, Lake Wogabagan, where all of the children are above average? Uh, are they going to understand an above average code? Or do you have to dumb it down for the only above average? <laughs> So it, oh, like what we got, um, the children are above average, but they're still children and they're still not lawyers. And so we don't want to be condescending, never be condescending because you lose credibility, but you do want to make sure that you're being understood. 
Tom, in, in this series, um, you will hear me say over and over again that my job is to help people make good choices. And I say that very intentionally because that's a concept that rings with my five-year-old nephew all the way up to, you know, grandparents who are in their 90s. Everyone understands the concept of making good choices. And you can teach them what that looks like for your organization. So I'm not saying you have to use that phrase, but a phrase that feels familiar and words that feel familiar. Don't lie, cheat, and steal or harass anybody. That's basically what your code of conduct says. All of the laws around what goes into your code of conduct could be boiled down to don't lie, cheat, and steal or harass anybody. <laughs> it's what the government considers to be lying, cheating, or stealing or harassment. But it boils down to simple, don't be a garbage person, and then make good choices. And so if we can teach people through our code that they have the power to make good choices and here's how, and we can do that through the language we use, I think that's really important. I think another important step is benchmarking. If you Google code of ethics, code of conduct, code of business conduct, you're going to see some really nice examples of codes that are put out there publicly. As a publicly traded company, my organization, we have our code online. You can Google it. Um, and you can see examples of what others are doing and then use that to benchmark where you're at. Look for codes that are in the same industry and look for codes with the same type of company, private company, public company, big, small. Do not copy and paste these codes. Do not do that. <laughs> that is not going to work for you. And, and that's never the right idea. But it will help you to benchmark against where you think you should be and where others are in your industry. I think that the overarching uh, piece of creating a code and developing a code is that you should be able to create something that you're proud of and that you want to display to the world. So when the SEC calls, you go, I got this. My code is top notch. I've got training on it. It's operationalized. And here's the monitoring and auditing I have to prove all of this. Nobody has that because that's basically a unicorn. But that is the goal, is to create something that you're proud to put out for the world to read. And if you're not proud of what your code says and you have the power to change it, then change it. Finally, before you hit send on any code document, if you have a board of directors, go to the board, get their buy-in, get their support. It's really important that tone at the top starts at the top. Um, fish, fish rot from the head down. So if you don't have the board on board, then you've already lost the biggest part of your support. And once the board blesses it, then you give it to your senior leadership and you say, this is our new code. This is now our Bible for how we operate. Learn it, live it, love it. Let me know when you have questions. All right. Learn it, live it, love it. Um, let me go back to the beginning. Uh, after you put the phone down from your call with the SEC, you did not say 
you went into the ladies' room and threw up. Mm -hmm. uh, you said you put your head in a pillow and screamed. Yep. And that really uh, is a point we probably should have started with in our first episode, but that seems to me to be a key characteristic of a chief compliance officer that they're calm and they're relatively cool and they don't throw up at every bit of bad news. And I was wondering if you might have some thoughts on why that sort of dispassionate, even lawyer-like mind, but being calm and cool is so critical for a chief compliance officer when all else around you may be up in flames. I see the role as, as the chief compliance officer to be the calm voice in the room. We know the, the rules, we know the laws, we should know how our companies are implementing the rules and, and what controls we have in place. And we know where we stand, I think most of the time, against any rules or laws. So for the good or the bad. And so I think that when we get bad news, it goes, we go into fix it mode because you don't become a chief compliance officer. You don't become a compliance professional unless you're someone who fixes problems. Like you are a problem solver at heart. And as a problem solver, this is just another problem. Is it big? Yes. Is it scary? Hell yes. Is it going to be expensive? Probably. But it's just another problem to solve. And so the stuff that we're made up of, and I, I, I tend to call it, I don't know what I want to call it, maybe grit is, okay, here's a problem. Let's figure out how to, how to solve it. So I think that that comes from the kind of people who want to do this work. This work is, Tom, as you know, pretty thankless. It is telling people no a lot of the time. It is telling people stop. You can't do that. It's telling people that way that you want to make money, we can't do because the rules say we can't. And you have to figure out how to do that with some grace using business acumen. And once you navigate the minefield of telling people no or saying, we can't do it this way, but we can do it that way for a living, the big scary things don't become so big and scary. After you've uh, screamed into the pillow and you pick up the phone and call the CEO, did you have the opportunity to remind him that when you did your uh, last update, that uh, you actually briefed him on that and that he signed off on it and he fully not only approved it, but fully embraced what you were trying to do. And then when you rolled it out, he did a video uh, about it and he's obviously done lots of videos and have lots of meetings. So he might not remember it, but once you gently nudged him, you, you reminded him that he was a part of that effort. And if all of that's true, why was his um, support and embracing it so important for the initial rollout? It's huge to have the support of the top. One of the things about companies, although it's it may be changing, is we're hierarchical. There is a boss person and the CEO is the boss person and he's the boss of everyone and he gets to tell everyone what to do. And if I have time with the boss person and can convince him that this is important, which isn't really that hard with the code because I think most CEOs understand that the code of ethics is really important. But once 
I've convinced him and, and had him buy in to it, then asking him to share, and I'm saying him because my CEO is a man, not because I assume all CEOs are men. Let me be clear. Um, I am asking him to share what he feels about the code with everyone else. So I would ask the CEO to do a brief message if he's good on video. So ours is, our, our my CEO vlogs a lot, but there are some CEOs that are less good on video. However, they feel most comfortable communicating. I ask that they communicate how they feel about the code and why it's important. Now, this is something I am not going to draft. And that's very intentional because I want the communication to come from them. I want it to be in their voice using their words, why the code matters. And I think that that helps lend credibility and the authenticity to their message. Codes are tied to values and values are really important, especially now. So when a CEO can put their weight behind the code and why it's so important that we know and follow the code and we live by the code, then it just adds weight from everyone on down. It also says that it's important enough for the CEO to take time to do it. His time is worth money. All of our time is worth money. His is worth a lot more than mine. So the fact that he takes time out of his day to address the code, to read it, to understand it, to quote it, and then to make a video about it says that there is fundamental value in that document. And for all of those reasons, I think that it's important that your CEO or whoever, whomever is in charge of your organization bless the code and really endorse it to the group. So our rallying cry today comes to us from William Shakespeare, and his quote is, suit the action to the word and the word to the action. And I wanted to use that rallying cry to explore why you think a code of conduct is actually a living, breathing document. Not, not simply that you would update it based upon new information, but that, to quote a famous person, you learn it, you love it, and you live it. So why are those three components so important to you in an overall code of conduct? The code lives and breathes with the organization. And as soon as it divorces itself from that, it's no longer applicable. It's like a constitution only for your organization. It's laying out the ground rules of how you're going to treat each other and to some extent who's in charge of what. If it is not li living and breathing, it quickly loses applicability and you're going to lose credibility. I think it's really important we do a code check at least yearly but we haven't gotten into the yearly cadence because we've updated more than that already. So we launched the code in, in February 2020, right as it's COVID was starting. And we've updated it two or three times since then because things change, conditions change, work and life changes. And your code has to represent your organization and your organizational values.
if your organization is staying stagnant and not changing, then it's probably okay for your code to not change. But I don't believe many organizations are in that bucket of not changing. You need to update your code and not just as an exercise to check a box. You need to update it to reflect what your organization is doing and who you are as an organization at this point in time. If your social justice or mission has come out of something in the last year, even if you're a for-profit organization, that's something that you can reflect in your code. Diversity and inclusion, that's something we're hearing so much about lately. It's really, I'd say 50-50, whether or not organizations speak to diversity and inclusion in their code. But with the social movement around it, now's the perfect time to update your code to speak to the need to have social awareness and diversity and inclusion in your code. There are always opportunities to make your code more relevant to the work you're doing and the business that you are. And you should take those opportunities because they're gonna make for a better code, they're gonna make people engage with it and connect to it, and they're gonna keep the SEC and DOJ happy. So Courtney, that seems like a great uh, ending point as we're at the end of this episode. Uh, I'm Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. And I'm Courtney Nardrum. Hope you'll join us for our next episode of Survive and Thrive. Have you ever wanted to start a podcast? Do you have an idea which you think would be helpful to the compliance community? Do you have a great story to tell? If any of these are true, why don't you start a podcast and put it on the Compliance Podcast Network? I have partnered with One Stone Creative to create a end-to-end solution for you to tell your story on the Compliance Podcast Network. If you have questions, please email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And more importantly, I hope you will tell your story with your podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network.